0: pretend like we're in Hawaii so <laughs> a little a little ukulele worship this morning um, let's all stand together and pray. Lord you are the Creator and we want to just bow before you right now and recognize that we are finite, And you are infinite. And what a blessing that is to know that. Lord, help us to just come before you in humility and and to receive your grace and to receive every blessing that comes from heaven. Amen.
1: For songs of loudest praise, teach me songs. Some-
0: Pretend like we're in Hawaii. (laughs) So a little a little ukulele worship this morning. Um, Let's all stand together and pray. Lord, you are the creator. And we want to just bow before you right now and recognize that we are finite. And you are infinite. And what a blessing that is to know that. Lord, help us to just come before you in humility and and to receive your grace and to receive every blessing that comes from heaven. Amen.
1: dreams i uh-huh.
2: Welcome to Harvest Community Church. Please remain standing. And normally and traditionally, it seems like as harvesters, we always sit in the same section. So what I would like today, I know might get a little chaotic, but if I can have this section over here, greet this section and give a warm welcome. Please do. Ready, set, go. That's <laughs> right? Okay, perfect. So first things first, uh, if you open up your announcement, you will have here uh, the welcome card. So please make sure you tear that out. Uh, for any newcomers here that are new to Harvest or for any prayer request, please make sure, uh, take a moment there, fill it out, and then just drop this there um, in the offering bag uh, towards the end of service. Um, so, we have here, we have the park is meeting Saturday, February 18th from 7 to 9 at Irvine Presbyterian uh, Church there to kick off the 30-hour famine series. Um, if everybody pulled out the orange flyer you see here, I mean, I was looking at it, and here, not only in Irvine, but in the United States for majority of the most part of the United States we tend to have an abundance of food. Um, and I know a lot of times we take it for granted um, how much accessibility access we have to food. Um, drive down, if we're in a hurry, we're going from work to office, place to place, whatever it may be. We see McDonald's, we see a Del Taco, whatever it may be. That's not a plug for them, but I'm just saying, you can just drive in there drop a couple bucks and you get yourself a nice cheeseburger, okay? It's not the most healthiest thing, but you can be fed and you're not grumpy or growling. You know, your stomach's not growling. But, you know, this is a special time of year that uh, we, we, we recognize those outside of the states, that what they're going through. Um, I know we get a glimpse of it when we go to Mexicali, um, uh, when we see there's not a Rouse down the street. There's not an Albertsons, there's not a Whole Foods, there's not a Sprouts or a Trader Joe's. That they have access uh, for food, even a lot of times water. Um, and you can see here, forty dollars raises food to feed children for one month. I think sometimes we spend forty dollars at soup plantation <laughs> for one dinner, let alone forty dollars for a month. Um, we they will always need volunteers. So if you can find any time and your heart there to to help out, that'll be awesome and definitely always, always, always uh, an abundance of prayers. Um, when is it? You see it there, it's March 11th and 12th. And uh, as you can see, um, the park's goal is to raise $1,000 to feed 25 children. That'll be something very special that we can reach into our pockets a little bit and, uh, and feed the, the, uh, the youth out there. And also, uh, they're gonna spend 30 hours no food. I remember I uh, done a couple times, and uh, there's just a wall that breaks through. But once you break through that wall and you say your prayers, I could have gone another week, but I would have disappeared. <laughs> I think my head would have got bigger. That's what it was. <laughs> but uh, so please keep this in your heart. Please do not forget that you know 30-hour famine, famine, and all the parents. Let's support our youth there. Uh, we also have the Woodbridge Garage Sale fundraiser. So this is a great time. Spring cleaning, any excess stuff, we're not going to call it junk, just stuff that's in the garage there that uh, you feel that you can donate, clean out, it's going to a great cause there. And uh, you can always reach out to Pastor Ben, and uh, he'll go ahead and give you more information on that. Um, And then we have uh, our next uh, SPIN luncheon. Um, If you see the acronym, Sharing Pain in New Seasons. Um, I know that I personally have gone through seasons of my life with um, losing my mother. I know my wife, Olivia, has losing her father. And any time that you can share, uh, you know, the experiences that you go through with people that have recently gone through a terrible season, I mean, it's just great support. So uh, we have it there. That's going to be Sunday, March 5th. Um, 11.30, and it's going to be um, here in the library. So please uh, contact Margaret for, uh, for any information. Um, and please uh, mark your calendar. We have it here. Uh, we have it Sunday, March 5th um, from 1 to 4 p.m. That's Family Serving Projects with Stop Hunger Now. As you can see, uh, harvesters, um, they're, they're, there's a need out there. And, again, if you can uh, take some time out, um, it looks like here, minimum age is four years old to go ahead and uh, participate, though. So there shouldn't be any excuses. It looks like here, February 17th, and please contact Juliet for more information. And uh, to go ahead and uh, be updated, save the date. We have the town hall meeting Friday, March 24th, from uh, 6 to 8:30. That's going to be a Presbyterian church right down the street here, and uh, that's going to involve more information about um, our building, um, what's latest and greatest for uh, for a harvest. And uh, and now, uh, with no further ado, what I like to do here is I like to introduce our special guest here today it looks like here that uh pastor paul has been married for 40 lovely years that deserves an applause 40 years <laughs> that is amazing and it looks like a pastor to pastors for evangelical free church of america I got tongue twisted and uh, but with no further ado we're gonna dig in a little bit more into psalms 22 so please, let's have a warm welcome for Pastor Paul. Thanks a lot.
3: It's good to be back. I, uh, whoever did the slides for the opening, I appreciate the fact that you put one of my life verses up there. Psalm 100, verse 3 says, we are his people in the sleep of his pasture. So I just... I know it takes a little bit to kind of think about that. Um... For those of you who may be thinking about attending that Spins gathering, this psalm in particular will be for you. I didn't know you were going to be ramping that up, but um, Psalm 22, and Curtis asked me to, to fill in uh, this Sunday morning. This is the 17th time I've been there, as I've been here. As I've mentioned, I can get invited to preach anywhere once. <laughs> the, trick, <laughs> the trick is getting invited back, so 17 times you've had to put up with this, but Psalm 22. Uh, it is one of my favorites, along with Psalm 74. And I think part of it is because of how raw and real and sort of unvarnished it is. Um, it's really too bad that the American church has gotten so far away from the Psalms, um, except individuals when we're in seasons of struggle, but we just don't sort of marinate in them. And the psalmists, the songwriters, felt like we ought to talk about what's going on and, and always keep God at the center. Um, So we're going to do, actually we're going to go through the psalm in kind of three parts. The first is David's own experience, why he wrote it, what was going on, what were those emotions that were swirling. Then we're going to look how it gets used in the crucifixion account. Uh, Jesus specifically quotes from this psalm. And then third, it occurs one other time, it's quoted in the letter to the Hebrew Christians, uh, a church that was suffering. So if you hear a theme here. It's because it's there. This is something that grows out of a season of real, real struggle. And he jumps right into it. So verse 1. My El, my El, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, literally my roaring. Oh, my Elohim, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Because I've been here 17 times, you know that when I'm in the Old Testament, I latch on to whichever specific name the author is using, because I think it's significant, and especially here. Because think about it, Elohim is the name that means the strong God, the one who's got the power to do whatever he decides he's going to do. Unlike those of us who are parents who make promises and we can't keep them because we just don't end up having the money or the time... My, three of my grandchildren have moved in with us since last we met. Um, they've been there about six weeks. Only occasionally do I turn to my wife and say, they're not going home. But, um, <laughs> but there are oftentimes, times, I mean, when I come out in the morning, it's, can you read to me, can you color with me, can you, right? And sometimes I can and sometimes I can't. And sometimes I say later and it doesn't really happen, right? Because I just don't have the power over my own schedule at times. But L is the name that means you've got all power. Why would he start with, you who are so powerful, you who are so powerful, why have you forsaken me? Because for David, the issue is not can you do something about the situation I'm in? The struggle David's having is you can and you haven't. Anybody else ever been there? Where in some of those deep places, you realize God, if you were to choose to do something about this, you could. But for your reasons that are unclear to me, you haven't. And that's not a comforting thought for most of us, at least initially. Yeah, that's, that's, that adds to the struggle. It'd be different if we felt like, you know, he's, he's got all these good intentions, but he just can't really pull it off, right? That would be, uh, that would help explain. It's, it's why we explain away why some of our friends aren't there during difficult seasons, right? We give them the excuses they need not to be there. But this is God Almighty we're talking about, literally, he says, it's, you just haven't done anything. You, and my, I'm roaring out this pain. As uh, Donald Williams puts it, the pain is audible. You can actually hear the pain in this song. And this is not a feel-good, kumbaya kind of song. This is a song where you, just, you feel the intensity, especially if you spend some time in it. He prays by day and by night, and he hears nothing. And he's exhausted by not only the suffering, but by this sense of abandonment. By this sense that, God, you are not there. Why would you leave me to do this? And in essence, what I think he says in this first paragraph is, I'm not silent, but you are. Right? I've still got words. I've got things that I want to talk about, but you're not there. You're not engaging me in this. That's the opening. That's how he opens this song. This, that is not the kind of worship songs we tend to sing. right? God, where are you in all of this? And then he contrasts that to God's character. That's an important first word there. Yet, in contrast to what I'm experiencing. Yet you are holy, utterly set apart, absolutely right in everything you do, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you what? delivered them, right? All those guys who came before me, when they were in trouble, you got them out of it. But here I sit. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So David moves his eyes from what God's not doing in his own situation to Israel and how God has been faithful over the centuries to do what he promised But like most of us, the pain comes back immediately, right? You get this little contrast of here's God's character, and then he jumps right back in. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So not only is there the immediate situation of suffering, and the sense that God's not there, on top of that, the people who should have been for him are also not there. And in fact, they are the ones taunting him. Think Job, for instance. Job's friends did great as long as they said nothing. And as soon as they opened their mouths, they heaped more suffering on Job by trying to explain what God was doing. And I just, a word of advice, if you're going to be be with people who are in deep trouble deep, difficult circumstances, don't say anything initially. As a pastor, I would go into those situations and they would, why? And I would say, I have no immediate answers. I have some ultimate answers, and when your heart's ready, you and I can talk about it, but I have no immediate answers as to why you, why this, why now. I mean, let's just admit it, right? We are not omnicompetent, we're not omniscient, we don't have all the answers. And so David says, not only do I have this struggle and you don't seem to be there, which adds to that, but all the people around me who should have been supporting me and be my community are not there for me. And notice the shift of names for God. Verse 8, he trusts in Yahweh. And I've been here enough, and I've been in the Old Testament enough with you, you know that that is the promise-making, promise-keeping name for God. It's the name that literally means, I will be to my people all that I am. So why would he throw that in there? It's like, well, you said everything you are, you will be to me. And part of who you are is comforter, encourager, strengthener, and I'm not feeling it. Right? So I, I want to remind you, Yahweh, that you're there and yet your own people, the one to whom you are in relationship, are not there for me. But having spoken that, he shifts again to God's character in verse 9. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my strong one. My L. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. So earlier, remember, he said, you've been faithful to Israel collectively, and now, as he's thinking this through, he says, and you have been actually faithful to me over the years. Right? I don't feel it now, but I do remember seasons when you were faithful and you got me out of this. He goes back to talking about his suffering here in verse 12, begins to describe it. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. You'll notice that I've got numbers 1, 2, and 3. That's because this is a poem. And for those of you who are English majors, I just want to point this out to you. He's going to list three kinds of animals, and then he's going to walk back out of them, which tells you that he didn't just dash this off on a piece of papyri one afternoon, right? He really thought about it. He wanted it crafted so it would be memorable for people. He said, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. They're ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. That's a little piece of pottery that's just a fragment. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. If that sounds familiar, when we get to the next section, you'll understand why. Because this ends up getting used both directly and indirectly. And then David goes into his prayer. At this point, it's been a complaint. But he turns his complaint into a prayer in verse 19. But, contrast, you, O Yahweh, the one who is to me everything that you are, the one who makes and keeps your promises, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Right? So he just marches back out. Each of, whatever those people are, and this is poetic language, there are certainly enemies. There are certainly people who are against him. And so while he identified these people, these groups who are against him, he says, God, I want you to take care of each of them. Right. Don't leave any of them untouched in your delivery of me out of this. The second half of verse 21 is where the psalm shifts. Verse 21 again. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Past tense. So again, this is a poem written in retrospect. But he wanted Israel to understand he wasn't downplaying the pain and the suffering he'd been in. It was deep and high. But in verse 24, he talks in the past tense. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. It looked like defeat, but you, it was really a victory. God did deliver, right? It took longer than I wanted and it was not an experience I enjoyed, but God did eventually come through. He was delivered from his enemies. So then what is he going to do as a result of this? Well, he wants to point out that in the midst of this suffering, where he called himself despised, abhorred, and and God feels hidden, that in fact, none of those things were true. Look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise Yahweh. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Yahweh and stand in awe of Yahweh, all you offspring of Israel. For, because, Yahweh has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Referring to himself. That, that season in which it was a tough season. This, there's no minimizing what he was going through. And Yahweh has not hidden Yahweh's face from the afflicted. But Yahweh has heard when the afflicted cried to Yahweh. From Yahweh comes the afflicted's praise in the great congregation. The afflicted's vows I will perform... Because or before those who fear Yahweh, I think it's important to translate all of those pronouns. That's why I took the time to do that because sometimes we lose sight of who's getting talked about here. And what he's saying is, my experience was I felt like I was despised, abhorred, and abandoned. And yet, even in the deepest season in my life to date, none of those things were actually true. God didn't abhor me. God didn't despise me, and God certainly didn't abandon me. And now that I'm on, gotten, kind of getting some distance on it, I understand that. Look at verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Yahweh shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. So once he's got this better perspective on what he's been going through, then in verse 27 he talks about, well, then what should I do with this story? All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall bow down or worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow down, all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of Yahweh to the coming generation." They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. In the Hebrew, that's literally, it is finished. Which also ought to sound familiar. David is saying, once I regained perspective of what had been true all along, my responsibility was to tell that story. Not only to those who were living it with me, but to generations unborn kids who hadn't even come along, I need to tell them what? The good news about God's character, about his relationship to me, about the fact that I was not despised, abhorred, or abandoned, that in fact God had been with me in all of that season. So let's switch over and look very clearly at Jesus' use of Psalm 22. Um, The authors of the Gospels, when they were trying to, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describe for the generations yet unborn, what was this whole cross thing about? Because certainly at the time it was happening, it looked as if God was losing, right? All those things Jesus claimed to be, doesn't look like it. I mean, who gets crucified? Jesus. And in the Roman culture, who gets crucified? Lawbreakers, scalawags, you know, people who don't deserve to live anymore. So what looked like a defeat, I think Jesus is saying, is actually something way more than that. Don't get caught up in what you see. Because in the Gospel accounts, there are four direct quotes out of Psalm 22, the most famous being the opening lines, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then there's a number of of allusions, the bones sticking out of joint. So he doesn't actually quote the psalmist there, but the way it's described, it's clear. He's referencing back to Psalm 22. Now, why do I think that's important? I don't know if you think it's important or not, but I do. Because I think that Jesus, as he hung on the cross, I mean, there are only seven short phrases, at least that we have recorded, that he said. Because you probably know, when you're crucified, you can barely breathe. In fact, it's not the nails that kill you. You suffocate on a cross. Because eventually, the muscles weaken enough that you can't hold yourself up enough to get a breath. As so you actually die of, of slow asphyxiation on a cross. Right? It's not just the pain. So the fact that you can hardly breathe, you are not going to do a really long speech, even to those standing around at the foot of the cross. You take care of the most important things, like woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother, right? Passing off his mother's care to John. The fact that that was one of the seven uses of whatever breath he had tells you something about his relationship to family and to friends. But this is after the three hours of darkness in which everybody looks like God is doing something here, right? And his words are, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, he could have quoted all 31 verses, right? If he really wanted to make sure everybody got what he was trying to do. But he doesn't have that kind of breath. My conviction is he quotes Psalm 22's opening statement to say to all of those Jews near the cross, Go back and read your Bible. Because it looks like I'm losing, like God is gone, like everything I claim to be is not true because I am despised by God, because only God who despised me would allow me to die like this. And I think Jesus is saying that's not it. That is not it. God is doing something here that is beyond your understanding. And that, in fact, rather than being despised, I am being deeply loved at the moment that it looks like defeat. Because remember, God, the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son had, from eternity past, decided the only way to bring people back to ourselves is for somebody to take their place. Because they will never pull it off. If God had waited until one of us was worth saving, he'd still be waiting. And if he had waited for one of us to be good enough to save anybody else, he'd still be waiting. So none of this took God by surprise. It didn't mean it didn't hurt. It didn't mean that this was not an, an actual gut-wrenching cry from Jesus. God, in all of this, I, where are you? Right? That, that sense. And yet, by quoting Psalm 22, think of where the song goes. God is actually more there for me now than in some of the other seasons in my life. If we talk about it from a human standpoint, when do I most ignore God? When I'm doing well, right? But when that stuff hits the rotating oscillator, suddenly I am aware that I need something more than me. So I think he cries out to point them back to Psalm 22 to say, God is actually here even while I take all of your sin upon me. Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, God the Father made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we, who are saved by grace through faith, might become the righteousness of God. We, can't, we aren't righteous enough. Our righteousness is filthy rags. We need God's righteousness. But had God actually turned his back on his son, Jesus, while he was carrying the sins of the world on himself? I was taught that, and so I read that into the passages, and we've got a contemporary song that says, and the father turned his eyes away. Right? Why do we assume that? And we typically assume it because of the verse in Habakkuk that says, God is too holy to look upon sin. And I want to suggest to us this morning that God, in fact, did not turn his eyes away. That God never even blinked during this time as he watched his son take the sins of the world upon himself. Why do I believe that? Well, first, like I said, I think that quoting Psalm 22 on the cross, Jesus was saying, Read the whole story. This is not the end of the story. And if God can look at David in all of this, He can look at me. Because think about it. If God can't look at sin, who can't He see? Right? And yet, we've got Habakkuk, so we've got to deal with it. Habakkuk 113 in the ESV says, You are who are pure, you who are of pure eyes, than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. I think this is one place where NASB, the New American Standard, gets it better, where it translates it, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor, right? It's not that he can't see it, it's that he can't approve of it, right? Because again, if he can't see evil, he can't see me, he can't see you, he can't see the person who still needs to know Jesus. He just can't look at their lives and say, well, that's not so bad, you know, I'll on a curve, you know, and we'll be fine. The can't look here is that is approving that thing. And, and so he looks at Jesus, who's taken all of our sin, and he can't approve of the sin, but he still loves his son. And the, I think about the only way Jesus can get through it is to know that God is still there. In summary, I don't think that God abandoned David, and I don't think he abandoned Jesus. I think in both cases, God was fully present to the one who is suffering. Even though the suffering wasn't good, good was going to come from it. And so I see Jesus looking straight, I mean, God looking straight into the eyes of Jesus and saying, we can do this. This is why you came. I mean, think back to the garden, right? In, In that limitation of whatever it meant for him, God in the flesh to be human, there was like, if there's a plan B here, I'm open to discuss that. But God kept, we are doing this. This is for them. We love them. We're going to do this. They don't deserve it, I know, but we're going to do this. Now, for those of you who are a little concerned that you've never heard this before, I found this cartoon. Of course, there may be other interpretations, right? There we go. Of course, there may be other interpretations, right? So, this is one of those things where <laughs> where if, if we come to a time of persecution and they put me on the rack, I'll deny this one, right? Hopefully not the divinity of Jesus or the fact that he died for my sins. But for me, once I began to see this and and, and had sort of marinated in Psalm 22, it actually made the cross even more significant to me. That God did not abandon Jesus. That God was there the whole time with Jesus in his face saying, this is is what we came for. This is what we're going to do. It Finish strong. Now, as I mentioned, there's one other use of a direct quote from Psalm 22. It's found in Hebrews chapter 2. It's quoted in uh, verses 10 and 11. It says, For it was fitting that God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus Christ, perfect through what? Suffering. And then he goes on. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That's a direct quote out of Psalm 2. And it was, remember, it was David's response. Having come through this, I will make sure I tell the good news to anyone who's willing to hear it, to the generations yet unborn. And the writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus became us, So he could take our sins, die for us, we become part of God's family, and then we get to invite others into that same family. We get set apart to be God's children. We're unique in all the world. And so when he quotes that, he points us to the sacrifice of Jesus in our place, making us one family. So that's what we have in common. We may come from all kinds of different backgrounds, we may have all kinds of different stories that we bring to this season in our life. But what binds us together is the fact that we belong to Jesus, who became one of us in order to die in our place. And I, I love the fact that when David talks about it, he talks about telling it to the nations, right? The goyim, the non-Jews, any nationality other than Jewish. They all need to hear it, right? And the generations yet unborn, And I love that imagery in Revelation where John, while he's on the Isle of Patmos, writes, After this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As a European-American, I'm glad it's all nations. As Asian-Americans, you're glad it's all nations. As African-Americans, you're glad it's all nations. I mean, fill in the slot, right? That it wasn't going to be limited to Israel. There was a, a larger Israel that God was calling. In fact, if, if you read carefully the Old Testament, God's design for Israel was that they would tell the nations. And, and that's the part they missed. They were to be God's missionaries. Why do we... What do we do with all of this? Well, we proclaim the Lord's death. It says we're going to proclaim it to the next generation. And we're going to uh, proclaim it to our brothers and sisters. One of the best times to do that is during communion. And we're going to celebrate communion together. Think of the word communion, right? What we have in common. It's what brings us together. So we're going to actually segue into this. 1 Corinthians 11.26, probably the best-known passage about the Lord's Supper, says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This, is, this means to preach. This is your opportunity to say to the people around you, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm part of the family. I belong here. Now, I don't know all of you in here. Maybe this is one of the first times you've been to church, you've been coming for a while, and this whole Jesus thing hasn't made sense, but something clicked this morning. And you realize, I need Jesus, to be my substitute. And I'm going to trust by faith that what he paid was enough for me to make me part of God's family. I want to invite you this morning to actually take communion as your way of saying, I embrace what it is God did for me. I acknowledge that it was his body broken in my place. I deserve to be judged, but I didn't get judged because he died in my place. His blood is the one that paid the price for my sins Let's pray, and then I'm going to ask, I'm sure I'm going to get some help up here. Uh, we'll, We'll go right into communion. Father, thank you for David writing this very real song about his own pain and suffering and the fact that you hadn't left him. Neither, Father, did you leave your son. You and he had decided that the only way we could be part of your family was for you to become one of us and have all of our sins judged on him. So Father, would you help us as we now celebrate what we have in common? Remember that it is because of the blood of Jesus Christ that we are cleansed from all our unrighteousness. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to first pass the bread out to you. Uh, I am told by the missionaries that I know that there isn't a single, single culture that doesn't have some form of bread. They use wheat, they use roots, they use something. But bread is sort of the one common denominator. And that's what I love about the fact then that Jesus took the Passover meal, which included the unleavened bread, right? Because they were in a hurry to get it baked before they headed out of Egypt. But Jesus became common human flesh. He became like all of us. He would get tired, it's clear, from Scripture. He would get a little exasperated with his followers. You know, it's just like, I've been with you so long, you still don't get it, right? He has that in common with us. And Scripture is clear that that commonality is what made it possible for him to die. Now, I know there's a tendency in our traditions among evangelicals to sort of close our eyes and think back about all the awful things we've done. If you need to do that, do that. But what I'd like you to do this morning instead, as you get the bread is to look at the people around you. Because this is the family, the local family, of which you're a part. And you, again, you share many things in common, but you have a whole bunch of differences. Even if you share same kind of genetics, same kind of family backgrounds, it's still different. And so as you take the bread, what I'd like you to do is just hold it for a little bit and look at the people around you. And then we're gonna eat it together. So if we could pass out the the bread, we got some, there we go. Once we've all got it, I'll, uh, I'll let you know when to eat it. But in the meantime, just look at it. <laughs> last phrase in that song that was being played in one of the verses, it's when I survey the wondrous cross. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my heart, my all. And that's the best way we can thank God, because obviously we can't pay it back. If we could have paid it in the first place, Jesus wouldn't have died. But we can at least show our appreciation by the way we interact with our families, our friends, our neighbors, those people who drive us crazy. that that the Holy Spirit would keep doing a work in us that changes our lives over time as we follow him. It is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Let's drink together. Father, thanks again for loving us enough to send your Son to take our place. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
0: Huh.
1: To your heart.
0: Let's all stand together.
1: Lead me to your
3: to go ahead and give you the benediction. The one I thought was most appropriate in light of the passage this morning is the one from Numbers, uh, Aaron's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you and give you peace. Amen.